I'm starting a new series today. Obviously, we're in the Christmas season, and I've entitled this series Cracking the Christmas Code. I believe that there's some hidden messages within the story of the birth of Jesus. I believe there are some things that I think gets lost or gets hidden in the fact that we just become so familiar with this story. I don't know about you, but I was raised in church. I was brought up in church. So my whole life, um, for the exception of a few short years, I've been in church. And so I think there are times that um, if we're not careful, we can lose the true meaning of Christmas. And uh, we can become so familiar with something and get so used to something that we miss the reality of what's really going on. And so I hope that through this series that I'm able to unlock some of those things and share some of those things with you. Like next week, I know the kids are going to be here. They're going to be ministering to us. But next week, I'm going to be talking about why God appeared to shepherds. Think about it for a moment. Of all the people God could have appeared to, to make this announcement, why did God choose in a nighttime or in the night season to appear to shepherds in a field? We'll come back next week and we'll unlock that reason why God did that. But today, um, I'm going to start by teaching and looking at something that many times we just overlook. We think it's insignificant. We think it's just, you know, doesn't really mean too much. But I want to start with the genealogy of Jesus. Yes, I'm going to preach a message on the genealogy of Jesus. Um, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Those places in the Bible where it says so-and-so begot so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who, right? Those places that you're reading and all of a sudden your eyelids get really heavy. And then you start trying to pronounce names that you're like, who in the world would name their child, you know, this name? And so you kind of get to the point where you're like, I'm not even going to read through this. I'm just going to skip over that chapter, right? Anybody ever? I've been there. I'm like, okay, all right. But everything that's in the Bible is in there for a purpose, all right? There's a meaning to everything that's in the Bible. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to get into the genealogy of Jesus, and I think we're going to discover that um, there were a few people in the genealogy of Jesus that if they were part of our family, we probably wouldn't want people to know they were part of our family. Anybody ever have that person in your family? I mean, you, yeah, Christmas vacation, anyone ever? Like Uncle Eddie? Anybody know Uncle? If, you, if you're not laughing right now, you might be Uncle Eddie. You didn't get it, but, you know, we all have maybe somebody in the family that's like, ah, you know, they're a little rough around the edges, and we just, you know, yeah, they're part of the family. We just don't tell too many people about them. We're going to talk about some of those people today and find out they're in Jesus' family tree. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to be here today. I ask God that you would speak to us through this message. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And everyone said amen. So if you go to Matthew's gospel, chapter number one, you'll, you'll begin reading names and you'll begin to see the genealogy of Jesus. And then you'll find in verse number 17, you'll find this scripture that says this, thus there were 14 generations from, from 
um, in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And so you might be asking this morning, what does the genealogy of Jesus have to do with me? What is it? How does it relate to me? I simply believe it's not just a mere formality. I believe Matthew's trying to make a point to us today. And I believe he's letting us know that not only is he showing us who and where Jesus came from, but I believe that, that Matthew is framing the identity of Jesus in two distinct ways. And just stay with me at the beginning. We're going to track through a few things, and then we're going to move into this. But I believe the two ways that Matthew is identifying Jesus to us is what is known, first of all, as the doctrine of incarnation. Um, the doctrine of incarnation is simply this. It's the fleshing of God. You can say it another way. It's God becoming man. So Matthew, in the genealogy of Jesus, lets us know that Jesus came to this earth and was fully man. But he also lets us know that Jesus was also fully God. And so you'll hear terms like this, Jesus the God-man, or you'll hear things like Jesus, God in the flesh. And then he said that um, he is the Messiah. In other words, that's referencing the deity of Jesus. So not only did he come to this earth in the form of man, but he's also came to this earth as God. He came to this earth as our Messiah, as our Lord, because we couldn't get to him. In our fallen state, we could not get to God. And so God said, I'll come to them. And so God came to us as what the Bible calls Emmanuel. God came to us so that he could let us know, I'm with you, because Emmanuel means God with us. How many are thankful that when we couldn't get to him, he came to us and said, I am with you, lo, until the ends of the earth or the world. And so not only is God with us, God is for us. And if God be for us, then who can be against us, right? And so God is with us, God is for us. That means no weapon formed against us will ever be able to prosper. And so God came, he said, I'll come in their form. He said, I will wrap myself in flesh and I will become like one of them. And one of the reasons that God came to us in the flesh incarnation was so that he could identify with us at every single level in our life. He knows what it's like to be an infant. He knows what it's like to be a toddler. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like to be a young adult. He knows what it's like to be a man. He can identify with us at every single stage in our life. Why is that important to us? What does that tell us? It tells us this, that you and I will never find ourselves in a situation or a circumstance that he himself cannot identify with. You'll never find yourself in a place that Jesus can't identify where you're at. And because he identifies with where we are and what we're facing, he can sympathize with us. But not only sympathize with us, he can also let us know that because I overcame those things, so can you. 
Why? Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And so that's encouraging to us today. That, that, should, that should let us know that there's nothing that we're going to face on this earth that he hasn't faced. But not only has he not faced it, uh, not only has he faced it, but he's also overcame it, right? He has overcome all things, and we are overcomers through him. But Matthew also lets us know about the divinity. It's seen in the scripture, as I shared with you earlier. He is the Messiah. I don't know if you noticed or not, but there are three divisions of 14 here. The three divisions, it says that, you know, he first came uh, 14 generations from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to the Messiah. And what that simply means is simply this. If we're going to crack one of the Christmas codes this morning, Jesus then is the beginning of the seventh of seven. In other words, six times seven, 42, the generations up until this point. So Jesus starts the seventh of the seventh generations. Ah, what does that mean? Are you just trying to get be cute here with some numbers? Well, Matthew knew that the Jew that was reading this particular scripture at this at that particular moment understood the the power or the significance of numbers, because the number seven is the number of completion, but it's also the number of perfection. The number seven is God's number on the earth. God. God what? God created the world in how many days? Six days. And on the seventh day, he did what? He rested from his labors on this earth. So seven is God's perfect number in the earth. Three is God's perfect number in heaven. There are three that bear witness in heaven. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So with that number seven, what it says then to every Jew that was reading this account, it was saying this to them, the perfect one, the fullness of God has come, and his name is Jesus, and he is the Messiah. Here's the interesting thing about that. When Luke records the genealogy of Jesus, Luke records the 77 names that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Why is that important? 77 is the number of forgiveness. Remember when Jesus was talking about forgiveness? He said, how many times should I forgive them? He said, seven times 70 or 70 times seven. Seven is the number of forgiveness. So when you take and the seventh day or the seventh generation, when you take that and you combine it with the 77 names, what you have is this. God sent the perfect one so that the imperfect ones could receive forgiveness of their sins. Aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus came to this earth because we couldn't get to him? Amen. And so that's important to us because it lets us know something. It lets us know that all of us were born sinners and all of us need a savior. It's important to us because even in the genealogy of Jesus, we see some characters in the genealogy which needed to experience the forgiveness that I'm talking about. You have to understand something. This was really a rare thing for Matthew to list women in the genealogy of Jesus. 
Many times when they talked about the genealogy of a family, they never listed women. But Matthew goes out of his way to list five women in the genealogy of Jesus. And there's a reason why he did that. And that reason relates to you and I today. And so the first person I want you to look at is the woman, a woman by the name of Tamar. Now, you can find the story of Tamar in the book of Genesis around the th uh, 38th chapter. It's really a strange story. It really is. Um, because when you start to read her story, you'll understand that she is the daughter-in-law of a guy by the name of Judah, which is where we get the tribe of Judah, which you hear the reference in Revelation 5 and 5 that references Jesus as being the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the Judah that we're talking about is this guy from which the tribe of Judah came from. He is the son of Jacob. He had three sons. Stay with me. I promise you'll, you'll, it'll make sense in a minute. He has three sons. His first, his eldest son, marries this woman by the name of Tamar. And so the Bible said that he was a wicked man. And because he was a wicked man, the Lord killed him. All right? I don't know what kind of wickedness, but the Bible says that the Lord killed him. And so it was the responsibility in this time, in, in the day of the Bible, that the next brother in line was to continue the bloodline of the family. So he was supposed to go in and sleep with his brother's wife to ensure that the bloodline of that family would continue. Well, the Bible says that, he, that, um, that, J, that Judah... Let, told his son what he needed to do, but and I'll, I'll give you the PG version of this, but the Bible is very explicit in how it talks about this. I'll just say this. He didn't finish the job. And so the Bible said that this was wicked in the eyes of God. God slew him. And so what happens is Judas, oh, a youngest son, he's too young to take on this responsibility. And he promises uh, Tamar that he says when he becomes of age, he will fulfill this duty. Well, he reneges on the promise. And so Tamar finds out about this. This is years later. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute. And she dresses up, and she's on this street that she knows Judah's going to pass by. And so Judah's with some friends, and she starts enticing him. Her face is veiled. She starts enticing him, solicits herself to him. And you thought the housewives of whatever, Beverly Hills was. I mean, this is in our Bible, all right? And so, so solicits him. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant by her father-in-law. And so later on, she reveals what happens. And so now we have Tamar, who is now in the family tree of Jesus. But I want you to notice something. Here you have someone who is, who is a liar, someone who is a deceiver. And then we have incest on top of all of that. And so Matthew, right out of the gate, doesn't hold anything back. And he lets us know this is in Jesus' family tree. How many of you know we have some issues? Are you with me right now? I mean, we have some issues. And some of us think our families are dysfunctional. Listen, it doesn't really get any better from this because the next name that Matthew lists is a woman by the name of Rahab. Now, many of you know the story of Rahab. Um, the Bible lets us know that she is a prostitute. Trying to get a reaction. I guess it, we've, okay, anyhow... 
okay, in Jesus' lineage, in the family tree. She's a prostitute. She hears about the wonders of God, and she knows that God is moving on behalf of the nation of Israel. And so the spies come in to, ter- to, to survey Jericho. They're about to take Jericho. And she says, she says, you know, will you protect me? And they said, we'll protect you. She hides the spies. She protects the spies. They, in return, say, when we come to take Jericho, whoever is in your home will be protected. So she took the scarlet cord. She put it outside of her window, signifying that's her house. That house was not to be touched. How many of you know I could go left here and talk about when the house is covered by the blood of Jesus, the enemy has to pass by? Come on, somebody. The enemy has to pass over. And so... So, so sure enough, this is what happens. Israel conquers the land, and so, uh, and so Rahab is protected. Her family is protected. She marries a man by the name of uh, Solomon, not Solomon, and interesting enough, gives birth to Boaz, who will marry the next woman that we're going to mention, and that name is Ruth. Now, Ruth is a non-believer. She's a Moabite. Ruth meets her mother-in-law, Naomi, because there was a famine in Judah. And say, no, Naomi and her husband and her two sons move to Moab. One of her sons marries Ruth. Ruth uh, worshipped false gods. She was an idol worshiper. She was a non-believer. Her husband dies. And then, I know it's a lot to get through, but her husband dies. Naomi says, I'm going back to Judah. And then Ruth says, well, wherever you dwell, I'm going to dwell. She said, whoever your God is shall be my God. In that moment, there's a conversion that takes place in Ruth's life because confession is made with the mouth. We believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouth. So at this moment, Ruth moves from a non-believer, from an idol worshiper to a worshiper of the true and living God, all right? But then we go to the next person. But the Bible doesn't even mention her by name. It just simply says Uriah's wife. Now, here's the story about Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the one who decided to take a bath out on her porch at night. David was king at the time. David decides to just go out and take a, take a little stroll on top of his, the roof of his house. He looks over and watches Bathsheba take a bath. Then, out of, a, out, of a, out of lust in his heart, calls for her to come to his house. He ends up sleeping with her. I know it just gets crazy. He ends up sleeping with her. She becomes pregnant. And you thought your family was dysfunctional. She becomes pregnant. David panics because Uriah was one of his mighty men of valor, And so David sets it up, and he has Uriah murdered. Then he calls and brings Bathsheba back. She gives birth to their son. The child ends up dying seven days later. She conceives again and then gives birth to Solomon because it is out of our pain that we give birth to wisdom. Out of some of the most toughest trying times in our life, God brings about wisdom. How many of you know we learn from the errors of our life, the trials in our life, the failures in our life? God uses those things in order for us to gain wisdom that says, I'm not going to do that again. How many of you know what I'm talking about? So let's take a break here a minute. Let's look at what's in Jesus' family tree. We have 
a liar. We have a deceiver. We have incest. We have prostitution. We have an idol worshiper. We have adultery. We have a murderer. Here we go. Then we have little Mary. Well, how in the world can Mary get mixed up with all of this? Mary had a little lamb, right? Here's Mary, but you have to understand something about Mary. She's not married, but she's pregnant. We know that she's pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. It is a God thing. But the people of that day and time didn't understand and didn't know what was going on in Mary's life. So it was very scandalous at the time. A lot of rumors were going around about Mary. As a matter of fact, remember Joseph said, I'm going to put her away privately because publicly he could have brought her forth and they could have stoned her to death. Right? They could have done that. But I just want you to see that you have all of these things going on in the lineage of Jesus. Matthew is going out of his way to let us know that Jesus is fully God and yet he is fully human. He's also going out of his way to let us know that God put Jesus right in the middle of all of this mess. In other words, Matthew pulls every skeleton out of the closet that's in Jesus's family tree. He says, I'm not going to hide it. We're not going to ignore it. We're going to let everyone who reads this story know that the family tree, the genealogy of Jesus, there was some messed up people in his family. How many of you know that Jesus is not ashamed to identify and Jesus is not ashamed to get close to messed up people? Oh, you ought to give him praise right there. You and I ought to give him praise right there. And here's the first point. The first point is this. Jesus doesn't love us from a distance. Jesus doesn't love us from arm's length. Now, we just dedicated these beautiful children unto the Lord. And um, I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. One of the things that I never became comfortable with was changing dirty diapers. Come on, guys. Help me out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Most guys will change a diaper from a distance. I don't want to get too close to this. Right? I don't want to get too messy. And so I'm going to try to do everything that I can to avoid the mess. Have you ever noticed that mamas aren't like that? Moms are like, get out of the way, you big sissy. They just roll up their sleeves, poop all over their arms. They're just wiping that baby down. And then they take the, those baby wipes and they start wiping themselves down. In other words, moms are not afraid to get in the mess of their children. And what I'm trying to get you to see is this. God is not afraid to get involved in our mess. I said God is not afraid to get involved in our mess. Even when we are at our worst, God is close. Even when we're messy and we're dirty, God is close to us. God didn't save us from a distance. God came to us, became like us, but yet was without sin. And God drew close to us. In other words, God came right in the middle of our mess. And he said, I don't care how dirty you are. I don't care how filthy you might be. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what you've done. If you will give me your life, I can clean it up. 
I can get it all taken care of. I can wash away all of the filth. I can wash away all of the mess of your past. I can take care of all of it. That's why we sang the song today about the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus washes all of that mess away. So you know what happens now? When you are redeemed of the Lord, in other words, when you accept Jesus into your life and into your heart, when God looks at you, God doesn't see the mess of your past. God doesn't see all the stinky stuff that we've done in our past. God looks at us and God sees Jesus, his righteousness, his holiness in us. That's how you and I can come boldly before God as sons and daughters of God. And God can say, come on, let me hold you. Come on, let me embrace you. I know where you've been. I know what you've done, but I'm here to help you and I'm here to save you and I'm here to deliver you. You are mine. You're mine. You know what? That's good news because there are so many people. There are so many people who think God couldn't love them. God could not possibly love me. God could not possibly forgive me. Do you realize what I've done? Do you realize where I've been? God could never use me. Look at my past. I don't know. I mean, I just listed, you know, uh, just from five people I just listed some sins that we, we wouldn't even think about, but I just listed some things of lying, prostitution, deception, paganism, adultery, murder, scandal. But how many of you know God loved every one of them? And God loves us. He doesn't love what they've done or what we do at times, but he loves us. And he loves us enough to get right in the middle of our mess and to let us know, I love you and I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to redeem your life. God is nearer to us, nearer to us even when we are at our worst. God's near to us. Christ died for us. The Bible says even when we were yet sinners. Jesus died for us when we would not even acknowledge him. He died for us. God is not waiting for us to clean ourselves up before he loves you. Do you realize that God has already demonstrated his love for us when he came to us as Jesus and died for us? He, can't, he cannot show his love any greater way than what he did already through Jesus. Jesus loves us up close and personal. That's what incarnation means. God in the flesh. But here's what it means to you and I. It simply means this, that you and I cannot love others from a distance. Now we can shout about the fact that God loves us and he's close to us, even in the midst of our mess. But it's a little more challenging for us to love others who are messy. It's a little more challenging for us to love others whose lives are totally wrecked. And many because of the decisions that they have made. It's hard for us to love people that don't have the same views that we have. It's hard for us to love people that aren't in the same camp that we're in. If Jesus doesn't love us from a distance, then I can't love others from a distance. I can't be that dad trying to change that dirty diaper from a distance. I have to be willing to get right in the middle of the mess and let them know there's a better way. Come on, somebody. 
I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful and I'm glad that God put somebody in my life who wasn't afraid to get in the middle of my mess and let me know there's a better way, there's a better life. I want you to look at Philippians 2, 6 through 11 with me. Verse 5 of this chapter says this, that you and I are to have this kind of attitude. This is the attitude that you and I are to have. Listen to what it says. Though he was God, this is all about the incarnation I've been preaching about. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he's talking about Jesus. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How many are thankful that Jesus is Lord. He's the only way to the Father. And so Paul capsulizes what we've been talking about. This is the incarnation of Christ, God becoming fully man. I want to read this comment by J.D. Grossman and Jonathan Reed, and it says this, is the renunciation of the divine nature not just about Christ, listen to it, but about God. Not, pa not a passing exercise in ultimate obedience, but a permanent revelation about the nature of God. In other words, what he's saying th is this. Self-giving love is the fullest expression of God's nature, not the exception of God's nature. Say it again. Self-giving love, giving of self, is the fullest expression of God's nature, not just the exception of God's nature. So now when I look at what Paul is saying in Philippians, I see it through the lens of the heart of God. And this is how we love people. We have to see people through the lens of the eyes of God. God doesn't have to think about giving mercy. He is mercy. God doesn't have to think about giving grace. He is grace. God doesn't have to think about love. He is love. In other words, it is God's very nature to be these things. God is love. God is grace. God is mercy. God is forgiving. So what does all of this mean to us? It means simply this, that our lives have to reflect his nature. I need to say that again. Our lives have to reflect his nature. So in other words, I need to be forgiving. I need to be generous. I need to be, I need to extend grace. And I need to extend mercy. And I need to love the unlovable. Why? Because God did it for me, right? He did it for all of us. And so God says, I want to be able to use you. And I want to be able to be a, a, a reflection, my nature be a reflection through you. Our nature should be one of mercy, should be one of grace, should be one of forgiveness and love. How many of you know we don't get to pick and choose who we love? Oh. What if God 
was picking and choosing. Based on merit, we'd all be in trouble. Come on. Come on. We'd all be in trouble. So we don't get to pick and choose who we extend this grace to, who we extend this mercy to. Because I'm going to tell you something. Um, There are some people, I don't know how to say this, but just say it this way, that I don't really care or like (laughs) the things that they do or the person that they are. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But I do have to love them. I do. I don't have to like the things that they do. I don't have to like the person that they might be, but I do have to love them. Because when I love them unconditionally, God can use that to break down that barrier or that wall that's in their life. Right? Just like he did with us. Because every time when we messed up, God's love was there. Every time when we slipped up, God's love was there. Every time when we messed up and we deserved judgment, God gave us mercy. Every time when we needed, we needed God's grace, God's grace was there. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And so it's the good things that God has expressed to us in our life or given to us that turns us to God. Could it be when someone is expecting us to bring judgment, condemnation, when someone is expecting us to bring the hammer down on them and on their situation that we turn around and let them know, I'm praying for you. I believe in you. I think things can change in your life. I know God can use you. And I know if you'll just give God this problem and give God this situation, he can turn it all around. How many of you know we can change somebody's life just by expressing God's love to them? I'm not talking about participating in their sin. I'm not saying that we can condone their behavior. I'm just saying that we are to love them. Hate the sin, but love them. And here's the tension we have as believers, and this is my first closing. Here's the tension we find ourselves in as believers. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. We're not to conform to this world, but yet the Bible says that Paul said we are to become all things that we might save some. The other question is, how do I navigate through these times without compromising what I believe that I can connect with people who are far from God and don't believe what I believe? How do I connect with them without compromising my beliefs without compromising my values. How many of you know that Jesus is our model for this? Come on, I promise I'm almost done. Just stay with me a few more minutes. Jesus is our model because Jesus never compromised who he was nor what he believed, but yet the Bible tells us that sinners felt loved by him at the same time. He didn't compromise what he believed, He didn't compromise his standards, but yet sinners were comfortable with him. They weren't with the religious crowd, but they were with Jesus. So what was it? How was it even possible? I believe John gives us the answer. It's found in John chapter 1 and verse 14. 
Again, this is the incarnation scripture. Here it is. The word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the, the glory of the only son who came from the father. Here it is full of grace and truth. There's the balance. Grace and truth. What is truth? Truth is God's standard. What is God's standard? God's standard is his word. We are called to love everyone. Every person, everyone is welcome at LifePoint Church. Come on, everyone is welcome at LifePoint Church. But let me say this, everyone is welcome, but we will not compromise God's truth for any of us. We're not going to do it. We're not going to change his word to adapt to the culture that we live in today. Here's what we believe. We believe that if we will demonstrate his truth, which is what? His word in love, we believe that people will adapt their ways to his ways and line up with his word eventually. That's what we believe, right? Come on, do we believe that or not? So here's what it is, and the musicians are coming, and we'll stand in two minutes. Man, I am, I'm right on time today. I see it right out of the corner of my, I'm right there today. This is it. Stay with me. Grace is God loving you just the way you are. That's God's grace. God loving us just the way we are. But the truth is, he loves you so much, he refuses to allow you to stay that way. That's the truth. So it is the combination. How do we, how do we balance this? How do we balance living in this culture today, not loving from a distance? How do we do that? It's the combination of grace and truth. It brings a healthy balance. Christmas tells us God loved us enough to come to us. Christmas says God loved us enough to get close to us. But because of his love and because he loves us so much that he refuses to allow us to remain in that fallen state. And if we would just give our lives to him, he can take our messy, filthy, stink, I'm sorry, that's sin. He can take that messed up life, turn it around, and use it for his glory. Aren't you thankful for that today? I want you to stand with me if you would. Come on, stand with me. Just for the sake of reverencing God's spirit right here. And just for the sake of reverencing the situation we're in right here, the reality that we're facing today. Because I'm telling you right now, there are people under the sound of my voice that don't think God loves them. There are people under the sound of my voice that if God was to list their life, if God was to open up their closet, it might be hard for us to handle. 
If God was to open up my closet, I wouldn't even talk about you. If God was to open up my closet, I can tell you there are things in my closet I wouldn't want anyone else to know. But God chooses to cover us with his grace. And God chooses to take the blood of his his son and wash away all of the filth, all of the mess, all of the stink, just to wash it all away and to cleanse us and to make us whole and to make us righteous before him. It's not our deeds. It's not our works. It's what he did for us that enables us to do that. Testament when they would take the blood of that animal and apply it to the sins of people. Here's what the Bible said. It covered their sin. So if I cover something, it doesn't mean that it's gone. It just simply means that you can't see it. But if I uncover it, it's still there. The New Testament, a better covenant, says this that God washes away not covers but washes away so that means it's gone can't see it it's gone forever when the enemy tries to bring up our past that's why God looks at us and says what I don't see that all I see is the blood of my son washing away all of that filth and all of that mess Aren't you thankful for that today? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that. But there are still people under the sound of my voice. You're in this room and you're saying, God could never use me again. God could never use me again. God, use David again. God uses messed up people because if he didn't, none of us would be doing anything. So you may be thinking, I've gone, to, I blew it. God can never, yeah, yeah, he can. And yes, he will. You just need to surrender it back to him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this room today and you're far from God, you've drifted away from God in your relationship, 